0: I'm Trevor Page, moderator for today's session. We're extremely pleased at SAGPUR's 50th anniversary session to have such a well-known public figure address us today. Welcome to SAGPUR, Senator Pamela Wallin. We want you to feel at home in this community We care passionately about the issues facing our city, our province, our nation, as well as our country's place in the world. We've had several of your colleagues from both Houses of Parliament address us over the years. As far as we know, SAGPA is unique in Canada. However, it's our hope that like-minded people across the country will form groups like this to remain engaged in public affairs. I want to recognize several of our local personalities that are here today. We have members of City Council, we have um, those aspiring to join City Council, and we have our former MLAs um, among us. So I'd like you to just stand for a second to be recognized. Thank you for being with us today. For those at SaGPA for the first time, our format is a 25 to 30 minute presentation followed by lunch and then a 30 minute Q&A. Please place $12 in the little basket on the table and have somebody at your table count it to make sure that the total is correct. Please switch off your cell phones and please be aware that this session is being recorded and is on shore TV several times a day for the next week. The SAGPA flyer advertising today's session outlines Senator Wallen's background and her many achievements in government, public service, and journalism. I'll not repeat them here, but I do want to tell you that among her 14 honorary doctorates, one was awarded by the University of Lethbridge in 2005. Senate reform has been on the agenda for decades and particularly here in Alberta. The requirement to give sober second thought to our laws before they are passed certainly seems a wise provision. But does the Senate serve as the check and balance that it was originally intended for? Or is it a waste of public resources? and just a comfortable place for ageing politicians. (laughs) Is a less partisan Canadian Senate likely to be more effective? That is the topic for today's presentation. Now, please welcome our speaker, the Honourable Pamela Wallen.
1: know if it's so comfortable Trevor (laughs) Uh, I want to acknowledge all of the friendly faces here too that Trevor noted and Reg Bibby who I've interviewed at least a thousand times Uh, (laughs) and uh, Ray and Ingrid who are here just so many people I want to thank Trevor Uh, he has a long and very impressive career in the foreign policy world, and and uh, it's great to see you so keenly engaged uh, in continuing in the debate. Um, to Knud, wherever he is, where's he gone to? He's right, oh, he's back there. Thank you so much for your persistence and for your invitation to be here. I know you're very committed to this group, and I think it's very important uh, that you do it. Uh, my friends are here. Uh, my um, Lifelong friend, Shelley Peterson, married to Jerry Bull. Uh, Shelley and I have been best friends since we were four, so we're joking that that's almost uh, 35 years now. Um, I don't know why they're laughing. Uh, and her husband, Jerry, who amongst many other things uh, served his country uh, as a sergeant military police, and it's one of the issues very important in my heart, how we deal with our veterans in this country. I also want to mention uh, Joyce Fairburn, who was a senator from this area for many, many years. When I first went to Parliament Hill in 1970s, let's leave it that way, um, she was one of two women on Parliament Hill, and she reached out to me as a young girl from Saskatchewan arriving uh, on Parliament Hill. She is a mentor and uh, to me and to many other women, and I think our Heart is with her as um, uh, these days in, uh, in Lethbridge. So this has been quite an exciting year for Canada. I've done a fair amount of uh, traveling to see different parts as we celebrate the 150th anniversary and for the Southern Alberta Council celebrating 50 years of nonpartisan public discussion. We need this more than ever in the era era of social media and fake news and highly charged partisan atmospheres at all levels of political engagement. And that is why my remarks today are inspired in part by Thomas Paine, an American philosopher, radical journalist. He lived and wrote in the 1700s. He said this, we must learn to think thoughts other than those we are used to thinking to hear with others' ears, and to try and see the world through the eyes of others. Payne's words have never been as relevant as they are today. Too often the opposite of talking isn't listening, it's simply waiting for the other person to finish so you can make your own point. But as the actor Alan Alda once told me in an interview, listening is the ability to be changed by the other, and that's what this council is about. We are a culture obsessed with immediacy, fed by the relentless flow of information from your smartphone or news. It's too easy to lose sight of truths. We celebrate notoriety, we let achievement go unrecognized. There's too much emphasis on what's interesting rather than what's important. We like what we already know, and we're comfortable with those who already agree with us. So I hope to share a few thoughts today in this context about the Senate about its evolution as an institution, because I believe the public needs to be engaged in the process of reform, and I'm grateful for the role of organizations like this in our democracy, because you help push the discussions from the private rooms, the back rooms in Ottawa, to the public arena, and that drives change. Still, some might ask, why are we discussing Senate reform when we are facing such momentous issues, unprecedented global uncertainty, threatened war with North Korea, unpredictable negotiations over NAFTA, a deal, as you all know, crucial to securing trade and jobs with our largest partner and market, and here at home, proposed tax changes that will hurt small business and entrepreneurs right across this country in all sectors, farmers, doctors, and the thousands of businesses that service the oil patch. But that is precisely the reason we need to talk about our political institutions, because there is so much at stake. We are, in this country, a pretty innovative and creative lot. Who else could have built this great east-west act of faith known as Canada against all the odds and redu- uh, resisting the seductive tug and natural pull of the north-south route? My grandparents were homesteaders. My dad's family came up from the States and settled in Granham. It was tough. Hope triumphed over harsh reality in the opening up of the prairies. And when I think about the spirit that was key to the process of opening this up, to building what it is today, it is about embracing change, taking risks, confronting the unknown, and most certainly about the will to succeed. This is the attitude we need to ask our political leaders so that they will make fundamental changes in how they conduct the public's business. Sometimes opportunities just present themselves, and I happen to be a big believer in serendipity. Chances, opportunities, small events, decisions taken, choices made, often unconsciously. All of those subtle silent forces that will change your life if you let them. A case in point, I had a babysitter when I was a preschooler. She was British. She told me about a place called Paris, France. She showed me kid gloves. And for the rest of my young life, I harbored an inexplicable obses- obsession with becoming a French teacher in a town where not a word of it was ever spoken. So I studied French at university, went off and traveled to Paris, came home, promptly changed my studies, went into political science and psychology, became a social worker, and went to job, uh, work as, with a job as a, a social worker in a maximum security penitentiary. Then a chance phone call from a university friend asking me to fill on a radio show led me to a career in a world that I had not ever contemplated or imagined, journalism. Set up my own production company, wrote three books, did a lot of work, then 9-11. I went to New York uh, to do a tribute called Canada Loves New York. The Prime Minister was there and then came an invitation to become the Canadian Consul General in New York at an extraordinary time in history. Five years later, another Prime Minister would ask me to serve on a special committee in Afghanistan and then to serve in the Senate. It had to be serendipity because you certainly couldn't have planned that. But throughout my varied careers, there is a common thread, and it's about public service, and it's about public engagement. Even journalism used to be more about informing minds so that citizens could make wise choices. (coughs) Maybe not so much these days. But throughout it all, I've also had the chance to see leadership up close. In business, in politics, in the military, I served on corporate boards, I've covered politics, I watched America and thousands of uh, ordinary Americans respond to the needs of their fellow citizens in the wake of 9-11. And I've watched our soldiers in Afghanistan do the impossible. It's given me a vantage point to observe leadership, to think about it. When I interviewed Henry Kissinger, he said this, a leader must have a willingness to travel on the difficult road between a nation's experience and its destiny. He is bound to be alone, at least part of the way until experience (laughs) catches up with possibilities. Another wise one, General David Petraeus, commander of NATO operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he tells the story of walking through a very tough neighborhood in Baghdad, and he comes across an American command post with a makeshift plywood door on which the following sign is posted. In the absence of orders or guidance, figure out what they should have been and execute vigorously. I think that's where we are with the Senate today. We are trying to figure it out. Because of our unique geography and vast distances, the Senate, I believe, is key to our democratic process. The electoral system is weighted against our part of the country, so we need some checks and balances. We need regional and minority voices. We need a Senate that will not fall prey to the same partisan posturing that permeates the House of Commons. I know many in this province favor a triple E, Senator, even abolition. I respectfully disagree because we have an elected, highly partisan body called the House of Commons. Two competing elected houses too often would end in stalemate, as we see south of the border. Father of Confederation George Brown put it this way, the desire was to render the upper house a thoroughly independent body, one that would be in the best position to canvass dispassionately the measures of this house and stand up for the public interests in opposition to hasty or partisan legislation. As Trevor mentioned, the fate and state of the Senate has been under discussion for decades. In the 60s and 70s, during the quiet revolution in Quebec or a period of intense Western alienation, the appointment process really came into focus. Some thought provincial government should appoint senators. Others thought thought senators should be members of provincial legislatures there were calls to shift some Senate seats to the growing Western provinces, and the push to an elected Senate was really spurred by the imposition of the National Energy Program. The Triple E Senate, elected equal effective, became an important rallying cry. Some believed that allowing equal representation of the provinces, regardless of population, would protect the interests of the smaller provinces and the outlying regions. There has been a huge imbalance developing over the last 150 years with Atlantic Canada overrepresented and Western Canada grossly underrepresented. For instance, there are 800,000 BC residents per each senator, and only 35,000 residents in PEI per senator. Alberta has 660,000 people per senator, and in my home province, Saskatchewan, there are 182,000 residents Senator. Just to refresh your memory on some of the facts, there are 105 in total. You must be 30 years of age to be appointed and you must retire at 75. Senators must maintain a residence in the province from which they are appointed and must hold real property of $4,000, which seemed like a really big sum 150 years ago and I don't know what you could buy for that today uh, in the housing market. 24 senators from Uh, The Maritimes, Quebec, Ontario, and Western Canada. Six senators from each, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Uh, And currently, the party standings, there are 10 vacancies in the Senate. The Conservatives have 36. The Independent Senators Group, 35. The Liberals, 16. Non-affiliated, about eight. You have undergone quite an experiment here in Alberta with the elected Senators, the Senators-in-waiting that started in 1989, where you actually elected nominees for the province's Senate seats. These elect- elections, however, are not constitutional or legal in any basis, so the Prime Minister is not required to recommend the nominees, but most have been. Stan Waters was first. Since then, Bert Brown, Betty Unger, Scott Tanis, Doug Black, very good and effective contributors. Back in 2006, the Conservatives promised to enact reforms that would make the Senate an effective, independent, and democratically elected body that equitably represents all regions. The Prime Minister referred the issue issue to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court said, not so fast. That requires constitutional change, and in some cases, unanimity. According to the Constitution, any change to the method of selecting senators which would include elections or term limits, can only be done under the amending procedure. And the abolition of the Senate would require unanimous unanimous consent of the Senate, the House of Commons, and the legislative assemblies of all Canadian provinces. Not surprisingly, following this ruling, Prime Minister Stephen Harper stated that significant reform and abolition are clearly off the table and many constitutional experts consider abolition abolition to be virtually impossible. So he moved on to other issues. Then just before the last election, a big change was set in motion in the Senate. Then third party leader Justin Trudeau promised to first kick the liberal senators out of his caucus and if elected to make the whole place the Senate independent. Easier said than done, and sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. If senators are truly independent, then you can't expect them to pass all your legislation and meet your political timetable. The call for change was also in reaction to the so-called Senate scandals, something I would actually call partisan witch hunts, but perhaps more on that later. But the Senate's longstanding partisan nature does indeed lead to political game playing and too often legislative deadlock. And partisan control of key committees allows the majority party to offer perks or meet out punishments to control behavior, votes, or to demand favors in return for relief. So clearly change was needed. The move toward an independent Senate has been welcomed by me and many of my colleagues because, believe it or not, political role playing isn't much fun for us either, at least at least not for most of us. None of us gave up good careers in the private sector to come to Ottawa to accomplish nothing. As former senators Hugh Siegel and Michael Kirby, one from each party, wrote in a recent paper, reform is needed, they said, to rescue the Senate from what has generally become a sibling of the House of Commons in partisanship, and increasingly a child of the same helicopter parental executive particularly the PMO. I am proud to have been given the privilege of serving Canada as a senator, and indeed it is a privilege. And I do want to assure you that a lot of outstanding work is performed in our chamber and in our committees. No cameras might help keep it that way, but I think it's impossible to keep them out. It has been called by some Canada's (coughs) best think tank, generating an original research on the media, on healthcare, on mental illness. One of my main committee issues that I have and will continue to spend a lot of time on concern our veterans, defense, I sit on banking, trade, and commerce. In committee and in my office, we are focusing much attention on transition issues, family support, PTSD treatment for our vets, and my personal mission is to continue to try to bridge the civilian and military divide in this country. You can grow up in Canada, in major cities, and never see a man or woman in uniform. And it leads to misunderstanding and underappreciation, and a lack of respect for our troops. So I will continue to work on that. Senators also help catch errors in legislative drafting. We make amendments in order to clarify statutes before they become law. But the key to keep in mind is that these functions of providing research or drafting uh, errors, checking drafting errors, they're important, but it's not really the fundamental purpose. So John A. McDonald called it the power of check against the democratic excesses of the House of Commons. We had a recent experience in the Senate, was an amazing case on Bill C-14 actually, assisted dying legislation that the Supreme Court had ruled on. And it was amazing to see what happened because people feel so personally about this issue, particularly if you have someone with a a, a serious illness in your family. And we divided ourselves up into groups depending on what we thought about the issues, uh, regardless of party and formed groups and decided who would speak in the Senate and to try to focus the debate. Uh, One of the, uh, in the report that that, uh, Hugh Siegel and Michael Kirby uh, wrote, they put it this way. The Senate shook the pressure of, shook off the pressures of ministers and court-imposed deadlines and introduced seven amendments. Some of these were actually even accepted when the bill was sent back to the House. Then they sent it back to the Senate for a second time And we agreed, uh, the house, the upper house acquiesced, was their word, to the will of the elected House of Commons. But we are keeping the pressure on ministers. And now that they actually attend our question period, which they do regularly, and this is one of the changes, it's a very good development, and we actually can uh, question them before they write legislation, not just after. We'll see this again on everything from legalizing pot to checks to the tax changes for small business. So transformation is a work in progress. Soon the independence will form a plurality and eventually a majority. And then we must secure proportional participation in the committees and in the chamber because right now it's structured the other way. We can only play a meaningful role in the management of the agenda, the committee, the membership, if our role is uh, recognized and is there proportionately. Many of our new independent senators belong to this group called the Independent Senators Group, I'm one. We operate as a recognized group as opposed to a caucus, which allows each of us to express our individual perspectives on issues rather than relying on party discipline or a party whip to force our position one way or the other. Having a broad range of experts who are free from partisan ties or a sense of indebtedness to a prime minister enables us within government and as Canadians to, I think, create a better, more independent, informed debate. Reducing party discipline has been a positive change, and I think we will see, uh, eventually, party politics fade as a force in the Senate. The appointment process is changing as well. The Prime Minister uses an independent advisory board to uh, to advise him on candidates based on their individual merits rather than political ties to a government of the day. It's not foolproof, but it's a start. It helps the Senate as an institution because people are presumably appointed for their expertise in the field, not their loyalty to a party. There are glitches in the application process, and asking everybody to fill out a form online is not really the best way to go. A lot of people don't live online, and I'm not sure uh, that that's uh, the best part of the process, but it's a place to start. These attempts at transparency unfortunately sometimes discourage seasoned individuals from stepping up. They don't want to promote themselves or be the one to say, pick me. But I am a believer in reform in structure. I even personally believe in voluntary term limits. Uh, I think that you should go for a time, as our MPs do, to make your contribution and then move along and let the next generation take over. In our rapidly changing world, nonpartisan independent debate and in gatherings like this will be key to meaningful change. A US writer, David Brooks, once observed that if you can't offer people a vision of what a government should do, you won't be able to persuade them about the things it shouldn't do. That is, I think, needs to be our starting point, along with the advice of the late great journalist Edward R. Murrow. To be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. And to be credible, we must be truthful. At this time in the Senate's history, I'm reminded of the great words of the British writer G.K. Chesterton. Roughly paraphrased states that the most important part of any painting is its frame. It tells you what side is up, what you're looking at, what the boundaries are. And we now have a frame to help focus our efforts. We sometimes might lack a little confidence to do this. We're inventing it. As Adlai Stevenson once said, it's hard to lead a cavalry if you think you look funny on a horse. (laughs) But we are going to give it a try. And as the historians say, trying to understand the present is like the man with his nose pressed against the mirror trying to see his whole body. We will not know whether this experiment works until we have the perspective of time. So thank all of you, and again, congratulations on your important work in keeping the conversation going and participating in this debate. May you have another 50 years. Thank you very much.